The neuroscience of fear conditioning helps explain how our brains learn to fear particular things and experiences. It mainly involves dynamic interactions among the hippocampus, medial frontal lobes, and the amygdala. Understanding how this works in the brain is leading to novel therapeutic approaches for anxiety disorders. We'll get to all of that, but first we need to understand what we mean by fear conditioning. And by the way, I'm Andrew and this is Sense of Mind. If you want more neuroscience and psychology content, make sure to like, subscribe, and join the newsletter. The link for that is in the captions. Okay, let's now get to fear conditioning and extinction. Fear conditioning refers to an experiment where an animal, often a mouse, is taught to fear a neutral stimulus and context by pairing those with a naturally aversive stimulus. Experimenters place a mouse in a cage, then play a brief auditory tone. As the tone plays, they deliver a mild electric shock to the floor of the cage, which scares the mouse and causes mild pain. Importantly, the cage has distinct visual cues, like stripes on the wall, and a distinct scent, like peppermint. So later on, if you place that mouse in a cage that looks and smells differently, and you play the tone, the mouse freezes in place, indicating a fear response. Similarly, if you place the mouse in the original cage, and even if you don't play the tone, the mouse will walk around, but it will freeze more often than if it had never undergone fear conditioning. In psychological jargon, the shock is called the unconditioned stimulus because the animal's response to it requires no conditioning, that is, learning. On the other hand, the tone is the conditioned stimulus because the animal's fear response to it must be learned. The cage where the conditioning occurred, with its distinct look and smell, is called the context. A quick note. Freezing in place indicates fear because mice are a prey species hunted by visually acute predators like birds, which scan the ground for movement. Thus, freezing is a way of hiding from predators. Mice also flee from predators, but probably only after they've been spotted. Before that, they stay still to avoid being detected. Therefore, in fear conditioning, when the mouse is shocked, it typically sprints around the cage. If the shock is like a small bite from a predator, it makes sense that the mouse flees. Conversely, if the mouse knows that the tone predicts the shock, it makes sense to freeze when it hears the tone because it knows that danger is approaching and that it's near, but it's not yet there. A second experiment you can do once the animal has undergone fear conditioning is called fear extinction. The idea is to reduce the animal's conditioned response to the auditory cue through a process where it learns that the sound no longer precedes the electric shock. You place the mouse in a new cage and play the tone repeatedly at random intervals, which teaches the mouse that it doesn't need to freeze in response to the tone because, well, it's not scary anymore. It's not paired with the shock. Now it's called extinction because you extinguish the conditioned response. However, if you put the animal in yet another new cage or the original fear conditioning cage and play the tone, it freezes again a process called renewal because you are renewing the conditioned response. So how does all this relate to humans? Later, we'll see that fear conditioning can help us understand anxiety disorders, while fear extinction may help us treat those disorders. Fear conditioning mechanisms in the brain. So how does this work in the brain? Fear conditioning relies on a network of brain areas, the most important of which are located in the medial frontal lobe, hippocampus, and amygdala. Note that the degree to which each of these regions are involved in fear conditioning may be different in rodents and humans, so I will try to emphasize the known differences while discussing each. The hippocampus and amygdala are important for forming, storing, and retrieving the memory. 
that is the association between the shock and the auditory cue or the shock and the context. The hippocampus's role appears to be the same across species. It helps the animals to remember the context, that is the immediate physical environment in which the fear conditioning occurred. This makes sense given that the hippocampus is crucial for mapping our external environment via special neurons called grid cells and place cells, which you can learn more about in my interview with Artem Kursano. After fear extinction, the hippocampus is involved in the process of renewal that we talked about earlier, where the animal learns to freeze again in response to the tone. This also makes sense because the hippocampus's most well-known function is to help store and retrieve memories of experiences. Okay, now what about the amygdala? First, a caveat. While the amygdala is undoubtedly crucial for rodent fear conditioning, in humans, its role is not as clear. Some studies find robust activation while some others show nothing. One possibility is that because the amygdala is small and buried deep in the brain, its activity is hard to detect. Furthermore, the amygdala is anatomically divided into about a dozen different nuclei, only some of which may be active during fear conditioning, making their activity even harder to detect. In my video about the amygdala, I noted some experiments showing that during fear conditioning in both humans and mice, the amygdala's activity may be highest during the trials when the animal is learning and activity may diminish after that point. In other words, the amygdala may be activating in order to store the association of the shock and the tone. As explained by neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky in his book, Behave, the basolateral amygdala, which receives information from the senses, including the auditory tone, strengthens its connections with the central amygdala, which is involved in outputting behavior, and those strengthened connections may represent the association of the tone and the fear response, whether freezing or fleeing. One of the amygdala's functions is to initiate the fight or flight or freeze response to stressors by helping trigger the release of stress hormones and activation of the sympathetic nervous system, thereby preparing the body to fight, flee, or freeze in response to danger. In the case of mice freezing to the tone, a 2016 study published in Nature found that the amygdala signals an area of the upper brainstem, the ventrolateral periaqueductal gray, which then sends signals to an area of the lower brainstem, the medulla, which helps command muscles in the body to freeze. This study suggested that fleeing might also be controlled by a similar but mutually exclusive brain circuit. In extinction, it may be these very connections that are weakened in order to reduce the conditioned freezing response to the tone. Importantly, we don't know whether these particular mechanisms are present in humans, so more research is indeed needed. Lastly, we turn to the frontal lobes. This is actually a massive region containing multiple brain areas, but two of the most important for fear conditioning are the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, DACC, and the anterior insular cortex, or AIC. As put forth in a 2016 review by Falana and colleagues, the AIC may be, quote, responsible for generating an integrated awareness of one's cognitive, affective, and physical state that becomes re-represented in the DACC in order to facilitate homeostatic, autonomic, and behavioral responses. In other words, the AIC represents the mental and physical state of the organism, while the DACC uses that representation to motivate a response. The authors further suggest that, at least in humans, these regions are involved in the conscious experience of fear and the cognitive modulation of it. Another important medial frontal region is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, or VMPFC. 
I noted in my prefrontal cortex video that this region is important for regulating our social and emotional behaviors, that it has a direct connection to the amygdala, and that this connection may represent the brain's ability to calm down the fight or flight response during stress. During fear conditioning, the VMPFC appears to deactivate, perhaps releasing its brakes on automatic responses to danger and threat like fleeing. During extinction, on the other hand, the VMPFC may activate in order to signal that the tone no longer signals danger. It also seems to communicate with the hippocampus, possibly to facilitate the storage and or retrieval of that safety information as a memory. Now, one last caveat. While these three areas, the amygdala, hippocampus, and frontal lobe are important for fear conditioning, their functions are not fully understood. Moreover, many other regions are involved, even though they may be less important. Okay, so let's now turn to how neuroscientists are using this understanding of fear conditioning to develop treatments for anxiety disorders. Disrupting fear memories. According to WebMD, anxiety disorders are, quote, a group of mental illnesses that cause constant and overwhelming anxiety and fear, strong enough to interfere with one's daily activities. Risk factors include severely stressful negative life events like childhood and sexual abuse, trauma and chronic illness. But why is that? Well, severe stress makes the amygdala hyperactive during and after the stressor, which may cause these experiences to imprint fear memories in the hippocampus and amygdala. What if you could disrupt these memories? Could you get rid of or reduce someone's anxiety disorder? As covered in my neuroplasticity video, memory formation depends on the ability of neurons to change their strength of their connections, also called synapses. Accordingly, you can prevent rats from forming long-term fear memories by injecting a drug into the lateral amygdala that stops protein synthesis, which is required for long-term synaptic changes. In humans, however, this particular technique is unsafe and attempts to use safer and weaker orally administered drugs hasn't yielded much benefit. A bigger problem is that even if it is effective, you probably have to take the drug before or immediately after a traumatic experience for it to work which seems unrealistic given that most people seek treatment long after the experience occurred. A more promising approach may be to disrupt memories after they've been formed through a process known as reconsolidation. When you remember an experience, the memory itself is a pattern of brain activity that is first taken out of storage and then must be put back or reconsolidated. And just as it's possible to say, take a diary out of storage, rewrite some of the entries, and then put it back into storage so that anyone who found the diary would get a different impression of what actually happened, it's also possible to take memories out of storage, edit them, and put them back so that when you recall that experience again, your framing of it will be different. This is essentially what therapists are trying to get patients to do when they explore and reinterpret traumatic or stressful memories, especially in post-traumatic stress disorder. It may be possible to enhance this process and maybe even destroy the fear memory entirely with drugs that prevent reconsolidation. According to Fulana and colleagues, however, the results of studies in humans have so far been mixed. Okay, so instead of trying to edit existing fear memories, what if we instead tried to form new positive memories that crowd out the problematic fear memories? In this video, we've already seen that there is a behavioral intervention that seems well-suited to this task. Extinction. Strengthening extinction memories in human clinical fear conditioning paradigms. When we fear something, we tend to avoid it. Yet, as the American Psychological Association notes, quote, avoidance might help reduce feelings of fear in the short term, but over the long term, it can make the fear become even worse. 
In such situations, a psychologist might recommend a program of exposure therapy in order to help break the pattern of avoidance and fear. In this form of therapy, psychologists create a safe environment in which to expose individuals to the things they fear and avoid. The exposure to the feared objects, activities, or situations in a safe environment helps reduce the fear and decrease avoidance." End quote. Now, you may notice that this is directly analogous to the process of fear extinction. In a safe environment, you repeatedly expose the mouse to the auditory tone, which would normally cause a fear response. This teaches the mouse that it need not fear the tone anymore. In humans, if you could enhance the brain's ability to learn during exposure therapy, you might be able to amplify its fear-reducing effects. On the pharmacological side, one drug called cycloserine, brand name seromycin, can increase synaptic plasticity and therefore learning associated with glutamatergic NMDA receptors, which you can learn more about in my glutamate video. In rats, this drug can enhance extinction learning. In humans, it may modestly enhance the effects of exposure therapy, but one problem is that cycloserine may enhance fear memories as well as extinction type memories. For example, some, though not all, studies on cycloserine in PTSD patients have reported a backfire effect where their symptoms actually worsen. But there's another non-pharmacological approach to enhancing extinction learning, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS. RTMS is a way of selectively increasing or decreasing activity in specific brain areas by beaming a magnetic field through the skull and into the brain. For example, in a 2017 human fear conditioning and extinction study by Raij and colleagues, the authors showed enhanced extinction when they applied RTMS to the ventral medial prefrontal cortex during extinction. Specifically, RTMS reduces the subject's autonomic response, in this case sweating, in response to the conditioned stimulus. So while this approach has so far shown limited and mixed results in studies with people with anxiety disorders, that may be because scientists and clinicians have not yet identified the optimal mixture of RTMS and therapy, nor the proper timing and amount of RTMS, and those parameters may depend on the disorder in question as well as individual variability. In conclusion, if you experience anxiety more often than you'd like, you might benefit from an understanding of the neuroscience of fear conditioning in particular and of memory in general. At the highest level, just knowing that it's possible to learn to fear something tells you that it's possible to unlearn that fear as well. If you fear public speaking, small spaces, or anything else, you can take advantage of the process of extinction by undergoing exposure therapy guided by a mental health professional. You can also strategically reactivate, reframe, and then reconsolidate memories in order to change the content of the fear memory itself. You can use your ventral medial prefrontal cortex to tamp down the activity of the fear circuit, allowing you to think through and reduce your feelings of anxiety in the moment. To calm an intense fear or anxiety response, you can focus on feelings in your body that help make up the emotion, a process occurring in your insular cortex, and then ask yourself if those feelings are really so bad. This information will then flow to your anterior cingulate cortex, which will motivate your subsequent behavior. If you suffer from an anxiety disorder, you and your therapist may eventually want to explore drugs or possibly RTMS that enhance or block memory consolidation or extinction. Though keep in mind that these approaches are in their infancy and may prove to be effective only in limited cases. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for watching this video. Uh, as always, it is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation, and this episode was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone, 
Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.